When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to Trashy Divorces, everybody's favorite good podcast about bad relationships. I'm Alicia, thanks for joining us today. Hey everybody, this is Stacy, and for today's episode I am covering legendary actor and comedian Robin Williams, who, while dearly departed, definitely lived his life on his own terms. For this episode, we're borrowing a song from his 1980 commercial failure slash breakout role in Popeye, in which he sings... I am what I am, which I believe is definitely true of Robin Williams himself. This episode does have some conversations around dementia and substance abuse and et cetera, and I will include some some resources in the show notes uh, should those be things that perhaps you might need some help with. Before we get yam and what we am, got a few shout outs in our magic mirror here. I want to give a big shout out. Thanks and praise to Sarah C. in Huntsville, Alabama. We are thinking of you and sending you all the best from TDHQ. Absolutely. Also to Nappy Dresser, to Cheeks8683, and to Keiko. We appreciate your reviews. Thank you so much. Y'all, we appreciate all of your trashy hearts. Thanks for coming to listen. Funny guy. Lots of tragedy. Let's go, go, go. Stacy, this week you're bringing us a funny guy with a sad story. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, this is Robin Williams, the wildly famous actor and comedian, undeniably one of the most talented and versatile comedians and actors of our time. But beyond the comedic veneer that he shared with the world, he struggled with a lot of demons on the inside. He was a complicated guy with, you know, there was a lot going on. We first met Robin Williams as Mork from Ork way back in the 70s, but that was only the beginning of his prolific career. He would go on to star in over 70 movies. He was nominated for four Academy Awards, and he won one for his work in Goodwill Hunting. He also won two Primetime Emmys and six Golden Globes for his acting work. But he continued to go back to his roots of stand-up comedy throughout his career, and he won five Grammy Awards for comedy albums. Like, he's really... So talented. The list of nominations, honors, and awards for Robin Williams could go on and on and on. But, you know, let's just pause it. Super successful, honored, accomplished performer. He was also an incredibly generous man, both to individual people and in larger ways through philanthropy, working with charities. He traveled the world to entertain the troops. All branches of the military loved and respected Robin Williams for his service and his attitude during those trips to visit the troops. So there's a little anecdote from um, a spokesman at the Pentagon. Oh, sure, like you do. So, yes, the Pentagon wrote, At the end of every performance, be it a combat outpost or a forward operating base, Robin was always the last entertainer to leave. Mm. In Iraq, a group of Marines came in from patrol and missed his show. He made it a point to meet with them and give them 20 minutes of fun, even as the chopper's blades were turning to go to the next show. 
In Afghanistan, the clamshell at Bagram Airfield was a favorite venue for him, and he performed there many times. In 2010, he started the show with, I love what you've done with the place. (laughs) He was not a prima donna. This is still from the Pentagon statement. Uh, One time, a sandstorm grounded the party at an outpost near Baghdad. Robin, along with everyone else, crammed into a small tin can to spend the night. The next day, his jokes about snoring and gaseous emissions pretty much convulsed everyone. He's a funny, funny guy. Many of his charitable and generous acts were under the radar and never seen by the public. But there was one very public way that he was involved in helping others, and that was through the comic relief telethons. Starting in 1985, they were inspired by Live Aid and Farm Aid and those big events. So it was himself, Billy Crystal, and Whoopi Goldberg fighting, you know, homelessness and poverty First telecast was in 1986, and they hosted it eight times and raised more than $50 million. That's incredible. But they did not stop with the performances. The three would also go to homeless shelters to visit those living there and struggling with homelessness, often without a camera crew, like just to go and talk to people and get to know the issue. But as we will see, Robin Williams had his dark sides as well. There were addictions alcohol. There were some affairs. There were some scandals in his personal life. And of course, he dealt with mental health issues that were sometimes nearly debilitating. Throughout his celebrated career of more than 35 years, Robin Williams would marry three times, hooray, and have three children. Two of those marriages would end in divorce, which is... For our purposes, is fantastic. I mean, we think it's great. His third marriage... Yeah, sorry about that. His third marriage would be tragically cut short by his heartbreaking death by suicide in 2014. One of Robin Williams' most quoted movie lines was as John Keating in Dead Poets Society. If you listen real close, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. Go on, lean in, listen, you hear it? Carpe diem, seize the day, boys, make your lives extraordinary. No one can say that Robin Williams himself did not follow this advice. Here is his story. Robin McLaurin Williams was born on July 21st, 1951 in Chicago, Illinois. Astrological sign of cancer. Okay. Ah, that's a fairly emotional sign, yes? Very much so. Interesting. So he was raised as an only child, although he did actually have two half-brothers. Each of his parents had a son from a previous marriage, but they weren't, like, the boys weren't all raised together. So it wasn't until adulthood that he really had a relationship with his half-brothers. So his parents were kind of a big deal. Uh, His father was Robert Williams. He was a senior executive with Ford. Oh. Yes, it was was a comfortable upbringing. Robert was frequently absent on business trips, and when he was home, he was often stern. He was not, like, wildly affectionate. So, you know, this was important to his son Robin because the first time that Robin remembered hearing his father belly laugh was while he was watching the comedian Jonathan Winters on The Tonight Show with Jack Parr. And that's how it starts. And that's how it starts. That's how they get you. So Robin remembered thinking that the way into his father's heart was by imitating Jonathan Winters. That's it. So later he would say that Jonathan Winters was why he became a comedian, but really it was to get his dad's attention and love. Shortly after Jonathan Winters' death, Robin wrote a piece for The New York Times honoring him. In part, he wrote, quote, My father's laughter introduced me to the comedy of Jonathan Winters. My dad and I lost it. Seeing my father laugh like that made me think, who is this guy and what's he on? (laughs) 
Sadly, Jonathan Winters suffered from many of the same issues that Robin Williams himself would later deal with, including severe depression. In fact, Winters suffered two nervous breakdowns in 1959 and in 1961 and spent time in an institution. He also had bipolar disorder, which back then was called manic depression. Wow, that's a lot of parallels. And I don't know if you remember this. You may have missed Mork and Mindy when it was on, but Jonathan Winters starred in Mork and Mindy with Robin Williams. Wow, I did so not that realize that. Okay. Had to have maybe been sort of incredible for him yeah. with Jonathan Winters sure. being working with his idol. Yeah, that's yeah. incredible. That Amazing. Is incredible. All right. So Robin's mother, on the other hand, was a former model and she was a part time actress. Lori was her name. She did not work when he was a kid, but she was frequently absent as well, doing charity work, pursuing her own interests. An important part about Lori is that she was very funny and she valued humor in others. They basically trained a little comedian is what they did. Sometimes parents do that. Yes. So Robin also remembered watching her be entertaining at social gatherings and dinners and, you know, society functions. And she would often make everyone around them laugh. Robin's father would watch on, maybe a little embarrassed that... It's like me and you. (laughs) (laughs) Robin learned the lesson early on that in order to get his mother's attention and approval, being funny was going to be the quickest way there. A Rolling Stone article quotes Robin saying, quote, the first laugh is always the one that gets you hooked. For me, it was my mother. I was always trying to make her laugh. For many years of his younger life, they lived in a large mansion in Bloomfield, Michigan, suburban Detroit, where, you know, Ford, where they had moved for dad's work. Robin attended expensive private schools, kind of similar to the one in Dead Poets Society, and was essentially raised by a nanny. Wow. Yeah. Despite growing up with, you know, the trappings of wealth, he was lonely. He didn't have siblings to play with. Again, the half-brothers were wherever they were. And his parents were hardly ever around, so he was left to entertain himself. And as children do, he went deep into imagination land to to bridge all of that. He also had trouble at school. He was bullied. He was called names. There were some physical altercations. He was an uptight child, and he had a hard time relaxing. It's weird that all of this stuff would, you know, give him an anxiety disorder, and yet... It is what happened. How to turn that into brilliance in your act and on stage. Yep. So it's not hard to see how and why Robin Williams turned to comedy as a defense mechanism and as a way to earn his parents' love and attention. He felt he was not good enough unless he was making people laugh. In a biography titled Robin by writer David Itzkoff, Robin's mother is quoted as saying, I didn't realize how lonely Robin had been. He had some very lonely years. You think you're being a wonderful mother, but maybe you aren't. Mm, That's tough. Things did get better, though. Uh, The family moved to Tiburon, California when he was 16. Keep in mind, he was born in 1951, so it's similar to David Cassidy. Woo! Yep, you're arriving at the center of the countercultural universe. Let's have some fun, friends. Precisely the right moment. Late 60s, California was enmeshed in the changing times and the counterculture. And so Robin was finally able to kind of find some friends and, you know, get, get high. A yeah, yeah. Experiment with drugs started to fit in with his peer group for once. In high school, this is also how they get you. Robin got involved in the drama department. Always how they get you around <laughs> That's here. How they get you. He was already the class clown, but performing in theatrical productions. 
helped him develop improv and acting skills. So when Robin graduated from high school in 1969, oh, these details of a life well lived, he was voted funniest student and he was voted least likely to succeed. No, both. I think they've cut all the negative categories. I don't think high schools do that. Relative right there. Yeah. So after trying out a few local colleges, Robin had honed his performance skills well enough to earn a full scholarship to the Juilliard School of Performing Arts in New York City. This obviously was an opportunity that changed his life. He was one of only two students to be accepted into the advanced program at Juilliard. So like entering not as a freshman. The other person accepted to the advanced program at Juilliard was an exceptionally handsome and athletic student from the East Coast named Christopher Reeve. Superman. Superman. He's so dreamy. They were t- They were best friends. Really? Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Yeah, same. Reeve remembered his first impression of Robin Williams back in 1973 when they first met. The first person I met at Juilliard was the other advanced student, a short, stocky, long-haired fellow from Marin County, California, who wore tie-dyed shirts with tracksuit bottoms and talked a mile a minute. I'd never seen so much energy contained in one person. He was like an untied balloon that had been inflated and immediately released. <laughs> That's what a wonderful description. <laughs> I watched in awe as he virtually caromed off the walls of the classrooms and hallways. To say that he was on would be a major understatement. There was never a moment when he wasn't doing voices, imitating teachers, and making our faces ache from laughing at his antics. His name, of course, was Robin Williams. So they would be roommates and would just be best friends until Christopher Reeve's untimely death. You know, after falling from a horse and uh, becoming paralyzed. Yeah, Robin would be by Christopher's side throughout that ordeal. Christopher even said that Robin sort of helped him realize that he did still want to live after becoming paralyzed. Just by making him laugh in the hospital by dressing up as and pretending to be Christopher Reeve's proctologist. (laughs) Can you imagine, Uh, like, recovering from a truly devastating injury and Robin Williams shows up to to check your junk? So this was a turning point in Christopher Reeve's recovery, and he and his family were deeply grateful to Robin Williams for that. Robin also helped cover some of the costs. Christopher Reeve's had, like, a team of 10 that he he needed round-the-clock care. Robin went so far as to make his own home accessible so that when his buddy came to visit, there was an elevator. There was, yeah. And so Robin also joined the board of the Reeve Foundation and supported it and the family tirelessly. That's a friend. Yep. Upon Robin Williams' death, the Reeve family issued the following statement. And Christopher Reeve, of course, died in 2004. The Reeve family, like many, will remember Robin for the humor, energy, and brightness he brought into our lives through the screen. We will cherish him, though, for the quiet and unwavering support he showed our family through the hardest times. In 2017, TD alum Glenn Close spoke at the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation's annual A Magical Evening Gala in New York City and reflected on the friendship between the two actors. She said, My first connection to Christopher Reeve was through Robin Williams when we were shooting The World According to Garp. It was the summer of 1982, When we were filming on Fisher's Island, on Friday evenings, Chris would literally swoop in, piloting his own plane, 
scoop Robin up, and away they would fly for the weekend. On Sunday late afternoon, Chris would swoop back in and deliver Robin back. I have to say, a little worse for the wear. (laughs) Those were heady days for them both, she continued. They were on top of the world. They were living the kind of fast and crazy life that our business can hand to you if you become a wildly famous phenomenon practically overnight. Their friendship, their connection is the stuff of legend. It not only endured, but became a life-giving force sustaining them both. Robin and Christopher are kind of my new favorite bromance. Bromance. I love them. Total bro. Yes, absolute bromance. And uh, Glenn Close continues, I'm convinced that if Chris were still with us, Robin would be too. Robin Williams would be an involved alumni of Juilliard for the rest of his life. He set up a scholarship that paid all expenses to a deserving student every two years. One notable recipient of this scholarship is the actress and Academy Award winner Jessica Chastain. Really? Mm -hmm. She graduated from Juilliard in 03. She has said, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. We didn't have a lot of money, and Juilliard's a pretty expensive school. Robin Williams is a very generous Juilliard alumnus and gives a scholarship every two years to a student, and it pays for everything, and I got it. I still haven't gotten to meet him. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) And so after Robin Williams' death, she posted to her social media, Robin Williams changed my life. He was a great actor and a generous person. Through a scholarship, he made it possible for me to graduate college. His generous spirit will forever inspire me to support others as he supported me. He will forever be missed. So after Juilliard, Robin immersed himself in the stand-up comedy scene in San Francisco and Los Angeles. It was the 70s. It was a hard-drinking, hard-partying lifestyle, and Robin was quite happy uh, to be chilling with the other comics. I mean, everybody's just being funny at each other. It's kind of great. And then offstage, they're drinking and getting high, and this is how he became very good friends with John Belushi and often partied with him in the early days of their careers. So this is a great spot to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to get into the beginnings of Robin Williams, the successful comic and actor career. See you on the flip. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother, but that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Disentel, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Bellisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disentel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. All right, let's get this trashy career and trashy love life off the ground. 
perfect. It was while performing stand-up at the Comedy Store in Los Angeles that Robin was spotted by a TV producer who cast him in a 1977 NBC special called The Great American Laugh-Off. Hey, a little bit of a fun fact that hasn't had a chance to come up yet in our spider webs of the Trashy Divorces universe. The Comedy Store uh-huh. is the location that Ciro's, the mm. nightclub spot at the base of Laurel Canyon, was. Same building. Interesting. Yeah. I love how everything's connected. Everything's connected. Yeah, Robin turned his five-minute, you know, stand-up act into a 15-minute show. And from that point on, it was pretty obvious that Robin had a special talent and was going to have a phenomenal career. The Great American Laugh-Off led to Robin getting an audition for a guest role as an alien on Happy Days. This is how Mork and Mindy started. Gary Marshall's son, Scott, was eight years old at the time. And he was no longer interested in Happy Days. He was bored by it. So his dad was like, why? Like, what's, what's, what are we missing on Happy Days? Scott had seen Star Wars. Oh. <laughs> and his life was changed. He suggested that Happy Days have a spaceman who flew down to Earth on it, and that would make everything better. That would certainly improve the show. So Gary Marshall goes to work the next day and tells his writers about the idea. And all of them hated it and thought it was absolutely terrible uh, and wasted no time writing the script for it. Perfect. (laughs) And get to casting. So they needed an actor who was willing to be completely outlandish and weird on screen. They asked Dom DeLuise. He said no. There were a few others who turned it down. But, you know, Gary Marshall's sister, Penny, had seen an up-and-coming stand-up named Robin Williams perform a Spaceman skit and suggested that Gary give him a call. I watched Robin Williams and Henry Winkler the other day. Did you really? In that particular skit, and it really is funny. Okay. Really funny. So, yeah, that cameo guest appearance turned into Mork and Mindy, which premiered in 1978. It was an instant hit in its very first season. It was ranked number three of all television shows behind Laverne and Shirley and Three's Company. The rest is history. But as much of a hit as Mork and Mindy was in its first few years, it sort of fizzled out. I think there's only so much you can go with that. It was only, it only lasted four seasons. It was canceled in 1982. So at this point, Robin Williams stars a little tarnished. He had done a big movie, Popeye, in 1980, directed by Robert Altman, produced by Robert Evans. It was expected to be a huge hit, but it turned out to be a colossal disappointment. There were negative reviews. It's been reevaluated over the decades, but I mean, we were talking about this. We both saw this as a kid and thought it was a great movie. Best movie ever. It was great. (laughs) However, because Popeye did not, in fact, land with the public in 1980, a musical about Popeye the Sailor Man. I can see why it was an odd concept. Anyway, so Robin's prospects at the time were a little questionable. We are going to have more about Popeye and about the this production of Popeye as a spider egg at the end is our Patreon bonus segment. So uh, patrons sit tight for that. There was another big blow in 1982 for Robin Williams. There's so much tragedy in this story. His fellow partier and good friend John Belushi died in 1982 Robin Williams had been with him the night that he died. Belushi was taking so many drugs that Robin became uncomfortable. 
John Belushi was hanging out with a woman and Robin had kind of a sketchy feeling about her. So he left and uh, he was one of the last people to see John Belushi alive at the Chateau Marmont. Robin Williams would end up testifying in front of a grand jury on the hearings of John Belushi's overdose. If there was anything positive to come from that death, it was that it frightened Robin Williams quite a bit. And so for a while, he was able to get sober. He said, here's a guy who's a beast who could do anything and he's gone. That sobered the shit out of me. Years later, Robin told People magazine, the Belushi tragedy was frightening. His death scared a whole group of show business people. It caused a big exodus from drugs. And for me, there was the baby coming. I knew I couldn't be a father and live that sort of life. First marriage. Let's do it. 1978, such a big year for Robin Williams, even without Mork and Mindy, because it was the year that he married for the first time. His bride was Valerie Velarde, and the two began dating after meeting in a San Francisco bar when he was just an unknown actor in 1976. Velarde knew Robin was special the first night they met. She describes it. He was bartending. He had a French accent, offered me a drink, (laughs) chatted me up, and was absolutely delightful. He asked me for a ride home. He was speaking French, and I was teasing him, and we had a kiss, and I just knew I was going to see him again. That's perfect. But, you know, the other reason why 78 was such a big year was that that's the year his career took off with Mork and Mindy. So with the success and fame, there were a lot of changes for Robin and Valerie. There were definite perks to the success, but it also posed serious challenges. Robin was already prone to womanizing, and now that he was famous, he had his pick of any number of willing women. Valerie was extraordinarily understanding about Robin's temptations, and she did try to look the other way for quite a long time. There's a documentary called Come Inside My Mind about Robin Williams' death. Valerie is in it and said, quote, He loved women, absolutely loved women, and I got it. I understood and I wanted him to have that, but I also wanted him to come home. So after Robin sobered up after John Belushi's death, his career got back on track pretty quickly. So 82, there was The World According to Garp with Glenn Close. In 1984, he had a triumph with Moscow on the Hudson. He was also doing TV shows and comedy specials and... Busy guy. Yeah, busy guy. Busy guy. And, you know, like succeeding, finally. Valerie and Robin had their only son, Zachary, in 1983. And this is sort of the point where Valerie really began to chafe at his philandering. Like, she she had really... With a kid in play. Yeah, she had really tried to be cool about everything. But, yeah, I think it stopped working at that point. She would say, quote, very attractive women throw themselves at men in his position. You'd have to be a saint to resist. Besides, neither of us was prepared for the sudden life shift. But I admit the other women were harder to take after I'd had a child. Makes perfect sense. 100%. So the marriage took a major blow when it was revealed that Robin had been having a two-year-long affair (sighs) with a comedy club cocktail waitress. Oh, no. Yeah, after the affair ended, his ex-girlfriend, uh, this cocktail waitress, sued him for $6.2 million and the Whoa. lawsuit became public. She alleged that Robin had knowingly given her herpes, which is fantastic. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. And eventually it was settled out of court before a highly publicized trial would, uh, boy, pre-court TV, it still would have been a huge thing. So the marriage had been damaged by years of infidelity. 
But yeah, the final straw was when Robin Williams began a relationship with Zach's nanny. Oh, no. Marsha Garces. Oh, no. He would later become very vocal defending Marsha and saying that she was unfairly taking the blame for, like, home record, you know, all that, all that stuff. No, you're the one who probably did it with the <laughs> nanny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was saying the marriage had essentially been over before the affair began, but whatever. Robin and Valerie divorced in 1988. It's been reported that Valerie received $50,000 a month from Robin for the rest of her life. So on to marriage number two, and that is Marsha. Oh, well, Mm -hmm. that's convenient. Second wife. She was the live-in nanny for his son during his first marriage. And, you know, Marsha was already six months pregnant when they walked down the aisle on April 30th, 1989. Their daughter Zelda was born that July. Great name. You do love that name. Although the marriage started under, you know, maybe unfortunate circumstances, the relationship was clearly based on more than that initial attraction because it lasted for almost 20 years before Marsha would ultimately file for divorce in 2008. That divorce would not become final until 2010. Marsha was very involved in Robin's career, and he credited her for being responsible for choosing many of his most successful projects. She would become a producer. She worked on Mrs. Doubtfire, Patch Adams, and Jacob the Liar. They would create Blue Wolf Production Studio and Windfall Foundation, a nonprofit focusing on education and the arts. They were also involved in a lot of philanthropic activities together. And they had a a second child, Cody, in 1991. Robin would say that Marcia did a lot to stabilize him and make him feel grounded. He told the New York Times... I don't need to go out to a club now and get a little bit of intimacy from 100 or 200 people. Now I can get that talking to friends around the table. So Valerie has spoken, the first wife, about the tension that she felt that Marsha created between Valerie and Robin because they had a kid trying to, trying to raise their kid. Valerie alleged that Marsha would not allow her into their home, which is interesting. not great. So while Robin experienced his greatest career highs during their marriage, there was Dead Poets Society, Jumanji, Mrs. Doubtfire, Aladdin, Goodwill Hunting. He would also relapse, and he struggled pretty mightily with substance abuse. In 06, his issues became bad enough that his family demanded that he go back to rehab. He would later tell Parade Magazine of relapsing, One day I walked into a store and saw a little bottle of Jack Daniels. And then that voice, I call it the lower power, goes, hey, just a taste, just one. I drank it. And there was that brief moment of, oh, I'm okay. But it escalated so quickly. Within a week, I was buying so many bottles. I sounded like a wind chime walking down the street. Oh, no. So, yeah, between addiction and mental health issues, like the marriage was suffering. So in 2008, Marsha filed for divorce, citing. Irreconcilable differences. Indeed. So following his divorce from Marsha, he was pretty concerned about money. Uh, He sold off some of his properties. There was a a ranch house in Napa because, like, he just couldn't afford it anymore. Divorces will cost you. They cost you. Uh, As with all things, Robin began to incorporate the emotional pain and financial cost of his divorce in his comedy. One of his lines was, ah, yes, divorce, from the Latin word meaning to rip out a man's genitals through his wallet. Yep. I remember that joke. Mm -hmm. Another was, divorce is expensive. I used to joke they were going to call it all the money, but they changed it to alimony. (laughs) 
It is estimated that Robin Williams' two divorces ended up costing him a cool $30 million. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of smackaroos. There was one more trip down the aisle yet for our fair hero. So there are a few different accounts of how Robin met his third wife, graphic designer Susan Schneider. The couple would tell the story of how they randomly met in an Apple store in 2007. Susan recognized Robin and approached him and they started chatting and there you go. Others in the recovery community suggest that perhaps they met in AA meetings. Whatever the case, the two began dating and they married in 2011. The wedding was attended by Robin's three children as well as tons of celebrities like Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, Billy Crystal. Afterward, they honeymooned in Paris, as you do. Susan has made it clear that she didn't marry Robin Williams, the comedian, and has discussed how different he was offstage and off-camera. She told The Guardian, The man at home, my husband, he was quiet, contemplative, and intellectual. The stand-up and acting, that was his work. Robin and I loved to go to museums together. He was a big history buff, so he would bring the history, and I would bring the art side, and we would double our fun. People tend to assume that the guy he was on stage was the guy he was at home, and let me make clear, I would never marry somebody like that. (laughs) So during this time, Robin's career was not... He was past his peak, perhaps. Things were not going as well as he would have liked. He was not getting the caliber of roles that he would have preferred. He was taking roles for money and he was increasingly unhappy with the work that he was being offered. Um, He did like the night at the museum films, but most of his work in this era was he didn't like it and critics didn't either. So he was experiencing a bunch of different issues at once. He was also having serious health issues. He had open heart surgery at one point He started having memory issues and he felt fatigued kind of constantly. A few years into the marriage, he started experiencing extreme stomach issues and like tremors. Not great. So as his physical health declined, depression and anxiety, of course, spiraled. So this led to really, really bad insomnia. At this point, the couple is just back and forth to different doctors trying to get like a good diagnosis and a treatment plan and like, please God, can I sleep at night? Like, as you would expect. So he was finally diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. He kept this private at the time. Susan said that his doctors recommended that the couple begin sleeping in separate rooms because his insomnia was so bad. In June of 2014, they agreed that Robin should check himself into the Hazelden Addiction Treatment Center in Minnesota But they say it was not about a relapse. A representative made the following statement at the time. After working back-to-back projects, Robin is simply taking the opportunity to fine-tune and focus on his continued commitment, of which he remains extremely proud. When he returned home, though, he was still struggling with all of the same health issues and career listlessness and all the rest of it, but now had picked up severe paranoia. So that's not great. He felt that the Parkinson's diagnosis did not fully explain all of the issues that he was having. He and Susan made plans to visit a neurocognitive testing facility to see if there was more going on. But sadly, Robin Williams would die before making that appointment. So we're going to pause here for another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the awfulness of dementia conditions. Back in a minute. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. 
Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Alicia, on the night of August 10th, 2014, Susan said that Robin was busy playing on his iPad when she decided to go to bed around 10.30 at night. She said his last words to her were, Good night, my love. Good night. Good night. On August 11th, 2014, Robin Williams was found dead in their home. His wife had gotten up earlier and left, assuming that Robin was sleeping in, which she thought was a good thing because he'd been having so much trouble sleeping. Robin's assistant and her husband came by later in the morning and they became concerned when he was still not up and about. So they start knocking on his door. He does not answer. So concern grows. So she decided to go into his bedroom and check on him and discovered uh, that he had died probably several hours prior of suicide. She immediately called 911. They were there within minutes. The grief and outpouring of love upon the announcement of his death was incredible. The world was shocked and saddened. Some of the notable celebrity statements, um, Pam Dauber, who played Mindy on Mork and Mindy, I'm completely and totally devastated what more can be said. Sally Field, I feel stunned and so sad about Robin. John Travolta, Chevy Chase, even uh, Barack Obama issued a statement. It's still it's sad. It's sad still today. Yeah. It, yeah. Will never not be heartbreaking. When Robin's autopsy was completed, it showed that he was suffering from what is known as Lewy body dementia. It's a rare brain. I don't actually think it's that rare, but it's a rare brain disease that shares many characteristics of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Lewy bodies are abnormal clumps of protein that gather in brain cells. And happily, it's a disease that impacts sleep, behavior, movement, and cognition. So I don't know what's left after that. It's It's a very tough diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So this likely would have been discovered if Robin had made it to that neurocognitive testing facility. But, you know, it would have provided an explanation, but there's no cure for Lewy body dementia at this time. Robin Williams is remembered as one of Hollywood's all-time greatest entertainers. He was loved by everyone, and his legacy of philanthropy and kindness lives on. In September of 2014, hundreds of his family and friends gathered for a memorial service at San Francisco's Curran Theater. Among those who gave emotional speeches were Whoopi Goldberg, Billy Crystal, and Bonnie Hunt, as well as Susan Schneider and Robin's three kids. Stevie Wonder gave a musical tribute. Others in attendance were Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, Danny DeVito, Lance Armstrong, Pam Dauber, and George Lucas, just to name a few. So, Alicia, that more or less 
is the trashy divorces saga of beloved entertainer and comedian and actor Robin Williams. He'll always be missed. Mm-hmm. He was a phenomenal talent and mm-hmm. truly a remarkable, remarkable man. Good morning, Vietnam. No trash cans, only halos. I concur with that. So thanks, everybody, for riding along with this one. Yeah, that was a tough one. Thanks for bringing that to us, Stacy. Thank you, Melissa, for your extraordinary yep. research. And thanks to all of your tender, trashy hearts for tuning in today. Be sure to stay tuned, Patreon folks. We got a little bit more uplifting spider egg about Robert Evans and maybe the real-life history of the real-life Popeye coming up for you. Always a lot of fun there. Patreon.com slash Trashy Divorces will get you all the goodies. All the bonus Easter egg drops we have at the end of every episode. Early ad-free episodes, dumpster dives, spider webs, and nightcap chats too. Big thanks to our Patreon community and big thanks to y'all for coming to spend your time with us, for telling your friends, for your kind reviews, and all your nice emails. We really do adore your trashy hearts. I'm going to be back. Mm-hmm. This weekend with a brand new Trashy Divorces saga for you. Until then, darlings. Keep your hands clean, friends. Keep those hearts trashy. Big love, everybody. Have a great rest of the week. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear want to advertise with us reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information and last but not least come play with us on social media i keep most of our trashy divorces instagram hopping stacy and i share it up over on facebook including our trashy divorces podcast discussion group come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening keep it trashy y'all